You're listening to Sharing Things, a new University of Edinburgh podcast from the alumni relations team about the university community, which we want to get to know a little better. Hi, I'm Amalia. I'm a fourth year student and I'm the host of this podcast. In Sharing Things, I talk to alumni, staff and students about their stories. Guests have all been asked to bring an object as a starting point for discussion, and the object can be anything important or significant. It can represent an event, person, decision, experience, or it can just remind them of something. Let's see where this takes us. In this episode, you will meet Sir Jeff Palmer and David Gray. Jeff is a brewing pioneer and a human rights activist. He was awarded a knighthood in 2014 for his contributions to science, charity, and human rights. David works at the World Bank. He graduated from Edinburgh with degrees in geography and geographic information systems before applying his expertise to international development. We talk about Scottish-Caribbean relations, beer, a changing Edinburgh, and more. Welcome to Sharing Things, Jeff and David. So I'm going to start by asking the question, what have you brought to the studio and why? Well, I've brought um, three little pieces and they are linked in terms of my own life. I brought a little carving. In fact, I bought it in Jamaica on one of my trips. A man was selling these and we had a little chat. I bought one from him and then he sort of asked me what my name was and I told him and he carved it on it. So it's sort of personal yeah. and it has a big Jamaica under the the bottom of it and it has my name. So that's one item. The other one is a the Jamaica Telephone Directory, which I will link in with my little carving of a young boy sitting under a coconut tree drinking a coconut. And I will link that with a, a man who is working in a maltings. And that maltings is in Scotland. Okay. And it was given to me when I retired in 2005. And it says 1964 to 2005 GHP. And of course, he's a maltster and my expertise is malting. Yeah. So is. from drinking some coconut water under a coconut tree to professor of brewing and distilling with an expertise in malting. What does it mean to you? Well, it means that when people look at Caribbean people, especially in Scotland, they don't always have an idea that there is a historical, a very strong historical link between Scotland and the Caribbean, which goes back you know, over 200 years. And when people talk to me, they can't imagine that I would have anything to do with not only that history, that I would not have anything to do with one of their primary industries, which is to do with our making of, of alcoholic beverages, whether yeah. it's whiskey or beer. So these items, I think, are very powerful because they demonstrate to not only my family, some of them more Scottish, but also it demonstrates to my students that, you know, we're all different, but fundamentally we're the same. Okay, so I brought three objects, but they're all very, very related. There's two books. One of them is called The Living World of Science and Colour. It's from 1962. The other one is uh, Newton's Pictorial Knowledge Atlas from around the same time, slightly older. Uh, and the third one is a slice of a geode, which is a special kind of rock, uh, a polished rock. I wouldn't be here without these three objects. I got really excited about, as most young boys do around the world when I was a kid, and these were actually the same books I read. I just found them on my mother's bookshelf like half an hour ago. 
they're still there. She doesn't clean the house very much. But the good news is when I open them, I still get excited about science, about the world, about how the world was formed. And really, that's why I went to university here. And I did geography and geology and uh, and things like that. And 30, 40 years later, I'm still as excited little boy as I was then around the world, the change of the world. So for me, these are symbolic of the understanding we have of the world and the fact that it continues to change and our knowledge changes. If you read these books, you discover, even in 1962, how little they understood of the world, that things that you would take for granted as a 22-year-old are completely wrong. Plate tectonics, which you think would be understood way back, they didn't understand it. It's not in these books. They were trying to explain the plates and the world, but they couldn't explain it in 1962. Isn't that startling? And then you read other things. They got it wrong. And if you're ever excited about that kind of stuff, you know, get the old National Geographics and realize that they didn't understand the world and they didn't understand people and interrelations of people and, say, economies, and they really still don't. I work for the World Bank now in Washington. And understanding you have to keep asking questions, keep challenging authority, keep challenging knowledge keep challenging the status quo and the fact that everything is very interlinked that those are still things which have kept me going and get kept me excited for then on so these are very important to me i need to mention this wasn't just about the books these were given to me by my grandmother and my mother who were obviously scottish women very very strong scottish women and i didn't realize at the time how strong they were and how unique they were. My grandmother was a geologist before they even had geologists, and she's one of the first women to ever be a geologist. And she started as a domestic servant, serving in the big houses of Scotland. She was a very poor orphan, but she became a geologist and a tourist guide. And then my mother was the first female science graduate. And then I came along and spoiled her life as a child. And she's never let me forget that. She then became a housewife, and she still is. But she'll never let me forget that I ruined her life. So these aren't just objects. They're, they tie back to real humans who change the way I am. Yeah. yeah. What would you both say is the biggest lesson that you learned from these objects? Well, as, as I said, you know, I've got the Jamaica telephone directory with me. And a lot of people would say, well, what's the point of having a telephone directory? But in 2007, the 200th commemoration of the abolition of the slave trade in 2007, what I noticed that if you look at the books which were written about the, the history of the slavery and the slave trade, I could not find any real evidence of the significance of the, the contribution that the slaves made to the Scottish economy. I couldn't find any evidence of what I call the cultural and genetic relations between the Caribbean and Scotland. In fact, people were talking about the Scottish diaspora and the Scottish diaspora was really all white. <laughs> You're talking about Canada, America, Australia, New Zealand. Yeah. And I find that rather worrying because I knew in my instinct that the Caribbean, in terms of the culture I saw there as a boy, and I could see that there. But I spoke to Scottish people when I came here in 64 and nobody seemed to know that very well. Mm-hmm. And just to sheer intuition. I sent for the Jamaica Telephone Directory and when it arrived in 2007 I was very surprised. About 70% of the surnames in it are Scottish. You know, there are 2,500 Campbells in the (laughs) Jamaica Telephone Directory and when you think these are only people who can afford telephones and when I looked at the Edinburgh and Lothian Telephone Directory it had just about half as many Scottish surnames. Mm -hmm. 
And this has now become an important part of the history of this historical link. And I did my DNA just for fun. And um, I found that, you know, I'm about um, 5% Shetland um, stroke Viking Finland. (laughs) So there is that link. Yeah, we're all interconnected. Yeah, where you've got a black guy who is part of the Shetland Finland history. And the Shetland people would have been in Jamaica. So I find that is extremely important. It shows that, you know, we have a relationship. I mean, we can't change the past, but we can change the consequences. And I think if people are made aware of these historical links, then people are mature enough to think about it and say, well, I have some responsibility here. And one Scottish university has, has just admitted that it received over £200 million pounds legacy from slavery and uh, have set up scholarships for Afro-Caribbean students to come to Scotland. And I think this is the kind of development, this is the kind of reconsideration which the world needs. And I think if we want to reduce the racism as we say it today, then one of the most powerful means is through education, and making people aware of of the past. You know, they say, well, I wasn't there, so what's got to do with me? I think that what the past tells us is that we share a common humanity and that we then have a responsibility to try and do what we can, even though we we can't change what's happened. I mean, it seems to me that we're still very early days, though, in kind of the the awareness raising of this. I mean, a lot of of Scotland was built on the back of this trade, right? Slavery, Mm -hmm. tobacco, sugar... I mean, it's, it's, like a, coffee. it's coffee. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's going to be a huge amount of owning up to things. And then, you know, obviously the fear everyone has that everyone's grandparents are discredited, uh, blah, 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 blah. So how do we deal with the reconciliation of this? And then I guess a follow on question would be, how is it viewed in Jamaica and the other Caribbean states? I think if we take about, say, the grandparent you know, how do the Scottish people are going to take this? In fact, there is a, a book out which is called It Was Not Us. And it is the idea that, you know, it really was, but we've managed to fudge it for so long. However, I've found that many Scottish people, when you relate this history to them, the response is almost the same all over the country. Why hasn't anybody told us this before? So somehow there is a sense of feeling that the system, what you could call it, whether it's the educational system or the political system, that somehow has devised over the years a strategy of not informing the people about their history. Well, I think it also may be how the story's told, going back to history books. Mm -hmm. The heroes we all had were up to their necks in this stuff. And that's, I think, part of the problem. I mean, I went to George Heriot's. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, (laughs) need I say more? All these merchants merchants were making their fortunes Mm -hmm. on the back of slaves. Yes. And, of course, at the time, thought it was quite the way to go. Self-interest. Complete (laughs) self-interest. But so I I don't know. The reconciliation will have a long, long way to run, I think. Yeah, I I think the thing about the Scots, which I've found um, endearing in that sense, is that once you tell them something which they seem to believe is true, then it's easy. And to me, um, if you tell the story of Henry Dundas, you know, that rather large statue we have in the middle of Edinburgh, you know, 150 feet high, and people are horrified, you know, a little boy in Linlithgow, when I, I told him what he'd done, he said, well, why do we put up a statue that big to such a bad guy? Mm-hmm. And to me, that reflects the views of adults in that you have a man standing in the middle of Edinburgh, 
whom said that, you know, if a black person was in Scotland, he's free. But if a black person is in Jamaica, he's a slave. Because the air in Jamaica produced slaves. And the air in Scotland doesn't. And on the basis of that, hundreds and thousands of people were enslaved. So the Scottish link is not only at the merchant level, it's at the very highest political level. So we have that legacy, um, a, a little story, sounds very poignant, <laughs> but it illustrates it, that in Penicoke, where I live, I was in a supermarket and two little boys were standing there from a year or two ago. And when I walked by, the little young one said, using the N-word, he said, there is a... And his brother smacked him on the head and said, it's rude to point. <laughs> and to me, that story illustrates it, the power of education. I was accorded the respect of an adult. You don't point at an adult. But nobody had told him that he shouldn't call me that and that it was not acceptable. It's not in the educational system. Some of the most racist views came out of the Enlightenment. And we have the most horrific slavery was active during the Enlightenment. So when people are being just intellectual about something, then we've got to be very careful because, the, as I said, some of the prejudice, the most horrific prejudice we have today about black people, and even class, those of the white working class, came out of the Enlightenment because you have somebody like Kant or um, Dundas... Adam Smith. Or Adam those, Smith... Yeah. Or you're getting Hume, statues up the road. Hume said black people were inferior to white people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he made no That's bones horrendous. about it. Mm-hmm. Mondobo, or what his name is, he was around at the time, a senior judge. He actually said, you know, that black people were inferior to white people, you know, and just above an ape. And thus, therefore, that gave the, the, the green light that if people are inferior, you can enslave them. And therefore, what we've had since then, it's in the subconscious of our education and the way we treat people by not including them is in the mind of the ordinary person that this must be okay. And therefore, we have a prejudice against a group of people which came from so-called some of the best minds I mean, I went up to Inverness and gave a talk to a school and the kids, they were 10 years old, and I said, who has ever heard of the N-word? And 90% of the hands went up. That means at 10, they all were aware of the negativity. Just that little boy who called me that name mm-hmm. already. And therefore, is how do we change that? Mm-hmm. Well, I have to, have to ask, when are you doing your hip-hop musical? Because uh, <laughs> that is flippant but it's also how people are starting to learn a little bit about this stuff that's the only way my kids would ever have learned about it is through singing those songs well you know they did ask me the kids you know they said well why did that black guys use the n-word and i said well they use it it's like if if somebody says you're you know you're too tall then you make jokes about tall people so you then remove the negativity by mm-hmm. using that so these um, uh, black musicians are using it on the basis that if I call myself that, there's no point in them calling me that. Yeah. But it's it doesn't, not for them yeah. to use. Yeah, it doesn't solve the problem mm-hmm. there. I think right. what will solve the problem is in a primary school, you point out that uh, Mr. Dundas did what he did. Yeah. You point out that Jamaica Street has been there from 1763 mm-hmm. because it was the commercial street trading in sugar and, and, mm-hmm. and coffee. 
and you point out that slaves live for seven years because a field slave was being worked, you know, most of the day. And um, the Jamaica was providing over 50% of the income. So that, if taught, I think will have a greater impact in changing of attitudes than somebody saying you must be nice to black people. Yeah. But I do think colonial history, I'm, I'm not sure what they get taught at schools, now, even now, but it's a tough, it's a deep, deep lesson, tough lesson to teach. Uh, I'm betting they're still fudging it a lot. Uh, I wonder why, you know, okay, there's a sense of maybe guilt or whatever, but I think that they've not asked the general public. Mm. If the management of our society think the general public are children and they can't take the horror of their own history, I think they're wrong. I mean, it's, it sounds very sort of Machiavellian, <laughs> but I kind of think also people aren't fully explaining how the system works to young people, right? I mean, economics is another great case, mm -hmm. right? I was struck the other day by the fact that the people in Sunderland voted for Brexit, oh, yes, yeah. but the only people who are going to get absolutely stuffed by it are going to be people in Sunderland, of right? Of course. Uh, now, did somebody explain that? And is that too complex for somebody working in a car factory that who knows that the parts are coming from other parts of the world? I don't think so. No. I think the people in Sunderland were never told that if they vote in prejudicial reasons, there will be consequences. The fact is that some people vote for Brexit on the basis that it was going to stop Europeans coming yeah. in. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that had nothing to do with their work. If we educate people in terms of the relationship that the people from the continent had a right to be here because we're a part of Europe, and therefore, you know, they're not really here to take your jobs or to, or to do any harm. Yep then, in fact, they would not have voted that way. So basically, it was just the communications around the 2016 election were typically poor. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was about selling prejudice yeah. against the people when, in fact, it was prejudgment. It was um, thinking it won't matter. And the people now who will suffer the consequences of this prejudice are the people who, in fact, voted in that way. And they did it through ignorance rather than any deliberate act of hatred. Yeah. And I think, therefore, the whole point of a university, this one and any other university, is we've got to teach people who are going to go out and teach and that we're going to, in fact, change attitudes mm -hmm. through education. But I also think the media are to blame, right? I mean, the university can do so much. Mm -hmm. it has a, it's dealing with largely, let's face it, the elite. Mm -hmm. But getting the message out in general, why was it so difficult to get a message out to the people of, of Sunderland that what they do has consequences? I don't live here, so I don't understand it. To me, it's uh, baffling. I, I think because what you had was various people going around saying, you know, you're going to get 300 million going to go back in the NHS if you vote yeah. uh, that way. You didn't have a group of other people saying that's not true with the same vigour. And I think that the poorer people in our society, when I've had the opportunity to lecture to them, I've found that this is this great astonishment that people see them as not being worth educating. And I think that um, we're all responsible for Sunderland. We're all responsible for, uh, for Windrush, in, in a sense that black people who work for the country as slaves were then being subjected to laws 
which in fact says you're not have anything to do with Britain, go back to where you come from. The point is that it is individuals, edu- we, we the educated, who have made those mistakes. And I think, therefore, universities have a role mm-hmm. because the people who manage our society, they are usually university graduates True. who manage our society. True. So you mentioned earlier that you work with brewing. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, what's your favorite beer? David. Me? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I've been deeply involved with uh, Professor's work for a long time uh, on the consumer side, I would okay, say. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brewing's a great topic. I mean, to see what's happened, the explosion of craft brewing, even more so, I think, in the U.S. than it's, ha- than it's mm-hmm. happened oh, yes. here. Yeah, when I first so. moved there, I almost couldn't live there because it was Budweiser and, uh, you know, and, <laughs> oh. it, and it's literally you almost, I, I, okay. I just can't do it. It's impossible. <laughs> But now it's um, r- remarkable. Every corner has a, a microbrewery, and uh, and they compete, and the, mm-hmm. the quality is fantastic, and uh, the experimentation is fantastic. Mm-hmm. What gets your <laughs> well, I'm, your you know heart warm? Well, when I mean, it comes it, it, to... obviously, it's uh, I mean, IPA was the big uh, India Pale Ale, but yes. get, my goodness, we can tie that back to slavery, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> It's, like, a, it's a colonial. Colonial. <laughs> it's a colonial. It's a, like, maybe you can explain why it was called that. It, 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 that's that's the, the, the very, very popular one. I did my DNA recently as well, and one of the things they do is they test the traits, and they said, you really hate bitter things. And I went, actually, <laughs> completely wrong. I just mm, yes. love the bitter things. <laughs> do you yeah. like a good sour beer then? Yeah, I really do. But I want it, one is, as one gets on, one tries to cut back consumption. So now go for quality, <laughs> not quantity. But, yeah. But, yeah. So what's one that, that you like? Ah, you see, I've been around so long, I always give the same answer. The one I get free. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best beer I in mean, the world. I mean, that is the best beer. <laughs> probably quite a few of them, given his job. Yes. Yeah. Free I, I beer is the best beer. You both went to Edinburgh, like, quite a while ago. So I'm interested to know how it has changed. Uh, I'm the president of the Alumni Club in Washington, D.C., so I see a lot of students coming through who've just graduated. And uh, there's no question the universities had to change, and it has changed. The one thing I always tell them is uh, all the students basically have the same conversation when you talk to them. I have to get a job, I have to get a career, and I'm kind of panicking about it because I've got to pay my rent, right? And and it's very normal. But what's really stark is that the working world that they're moving into is totally different from our days. Uh, In our days, the big dream was to get in a company and and stay with that company and go up the promotion ladder until you became important and then get a gold watch and work in the garden until you die. You know, that was largely the dream your parents sold you. And it felt kind of annoying and preordained. And, but that's totally gone. And so now it's about managing your life and the career will change 10 times. Every few years, you'll be able to jump and change job, maybe even change career, be- start off as a geographer, become a lawyer, mm-hmm. uh, start off as a this and, and end up with that. How exciting. So it's a, as an opportunity, fantastic. The university, I think, probably needs to do, maybe do more to, to explain that to people on the on the entry, that life isn't linear anymore. And, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So, But I, just, I, I do think it's making tremendous strides. I mean, Edinburgh in the world has an extraordinary reputation for innovation. And the people that come from Edinburgh are uniquely talented in that regard. They're open-minded. They're integrated thinkers, which comes back to my earlier point about seeing the world in beyond just a narrow discipline. The Scottish education system is much more generalist. And that's what the world needs, actually, as much as anything else, is people who can see the whole problem. You talk about slavery. 
it's not just slavery. It's the economic system. Mm-hmm. It's behavioral stuff. It's if you start to see the broader picture, you can uh, be far more useful. And it also helps you to change career because you have a more broad, a broad education. So I don't know. I think it's doing great, but the world is changing so fast. It's tough for a big organization to, uh, to turn the, the ship as quickly as it needs to. Yeah. What about you? What do you think? Well, um, as I said, I came in 64 and uh, I walked across the square there just in front of the McEwen building. And I thought, my God, you know, when I used to be a student, there were three people. <laughs> Walking across <laughs> on an afternoon like this every three three people, uh, you know. Now, um, so the whole world has changed. Yeah. Just to bring it back to the objects, I'm going to ask one last question, okay. and that is, if you could associate your objects, uh, plural, with one word, what would it be? Meeting expectations, yeah. and and again, it's that um, in society, I find that um, what a lot of people do not understand is how to meet expectations mm-hmm. of our society. Mm-hmm. In a little book I, I produced once called The Enlightenment Abolished, that's the title, and in it I pointed out, you know, the, the word I used was system consciousness. And what I mean by that is knowing how to meet expectations. And it's not being com- compliant or complicit with the society, is knowing the expectations so you know whether you want to meet them or not how to meet them. So meeting expectations is a very significant aspect of the way we live. And I I can do the one word thing. (laughs) And that word is curiosity, right? And I think you, if you've got, you've got to go through a life with curiosity and maybe you're in a sense of wonder and keep asking questions. And sometimes you just see people who don't. And I'm really sorry for them. I think you've got to keep asking questions and challenging your own beliefs and challenging other people's stuff too. and Edinburgh, I think, did a very good job at putting that mentality into your head. But it's so critical. The day you find yourself not asking questions, you don't learn, and you're, you're dead. So I hope that's what people do more of, is yeah. be curious. Thank you, both of you, for being on Sharing Things. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to Sharing Things. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play to catch our next episode. Be sure to visit our website to read more about our guests and other episodes at www.ed.ac.uk slash sharingthingspodcast with little dashes between the words. You can let us know what you think on the website or by using the hashtag sharingthingspodcast. See you next time.